the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's time for a conversation about the things we share in common. Our common hopes, our common fears, our common struggles. Together, we'll wrestle with the questions that we all have about the issues that affect our lives. This is The Common Good. Now, here are your hosts, Brian Fromm and Ian Simpkins. Hey, everybody. Welcome to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, along with my buddy, Brian Fromm. Oh, Brian uh, James Fromm. You got it. I got it. You got it. <laughs> have, we, have we discussed mine yet? It doesn't matter. No one cares. It doesn't matter. <laughs> we'll leave some things a mystery. Oh, I like that. Ian's so mysterious. I don't even know his middle name. Ooh. Uh, you can find us on Facebook at The Common Good Radio Show, 1160hope.com, or wherever it is that you get your podcast and uh, podcasts. I don't yep. think I pluralized that well. Anyway, we'll play it back later. So uh, <laughs> something happened, Brian, that's making us, I don't know, s- sad the right word? No, it's its its a crazy story. So pop culture world, uh, Jeopardy, old person pop culture. <laughs> and uh, James uh, Holzhauer, who has been on one of the most unbelievable runs. He run 33 games of Jeopardy in a row. That's bonkers. Uh, $2,464,216. <laughs> I heard today that he has like 12 of the top 15 single game uh, scores. Well, yesterday uh, he went up against a uh, Chicago area librarian uh, by the name of Emma Betcher. uh, And he he was so cool about it, man. He was talking about how he just couldn't overtake her. Uh, She her background is also crazy. Uh, Emma Betcher wrote her doctoral thesis on predicting the difficulty of trivia questions using Jeopardy clues. Or her no master, kidding. Her master's thesis, I should say. Oh, that's interesting. And she wrote her undergrad thesis at Princeton on Shakespeare plays, which happened to be final Jeopardy question yesterday. <laughs> and so Holzhauer went in a little bit behind, and finally the streak ended. Uh, the champion is gone. Uh, uh, David beat Goliath. <laughs> that sound effect will never not make me laugh by the it's way <laughs> and so it's, it's a cool story like he's a professional gambler he he uh, a sports gambler he's from naperville originally but now lives in vegas and you know they'll bring him back for the tournament of champions his his days of winning money on jeopardy are not over but people are like trying to say how see like how disappointing he was he's like i won almost 2.5 million dollars he's like, i'm fine the amazing thing is uh in 40 less shows, he was only a little over $50,000 away from breaking the all-time Jeopardy record. Uh, oh, really? Held by Ken Jennings, who won 73 games in a row. That shows you how much Holzhauer won compared to what Jennings did on a game-by-game basis. But he went into yesterday like fifty grand behind the ultimate. I think it was 56000 and then he lost. But he was so gracious. He's like, she beat me. She's... She did great. After she won, he went over and gave her a hug and a high five. Like what a there guy. was no sulking. And then for the for more pop culture references, we all know Drake and Drake is in the news with the Toronto Raptors right now. And there's this <laughs> thing going around that Drake, uh, whoever he roots for, loses. Right, right. And uh, 
uh, Holzhauer tweeted, uh, I, I picked the wrong episode to invite Drake to for Jeopardy. <laughs> <laughs> he, he posted that actually before the episode aired. So did, sort of this like ominous nod. It like, started oh. leaking that, that he lost. I didn't realize these started taping back in February and didn't start being aired till April. So, you know, there's that kind of delay. And so he knew how this was going to play out. And that's so uh, interesting. how fun. So anyway, the, a tip of the cap to a, to a good <laughs> Jeopardy champion. But I'm sure he cares that we're tipping our cap I, to him. I'm sure Jeopardy cares. though. man, they got a lot of buzz out of this. And so now it goes back and maybe she'll have a run now. So uh, but yeah, a cool, a cool story and a lot of money for that guy. Yeah, I, I always read stories like this and I think oh, I'm so glad there's. So many smart people in the world. I just yeah. watched Jeopardy and am reminded of just not. Here, let me blow you away with smart one am. stat before okay. we move on. He, over the course of his run, let me find this. Uh, he finished with 1,186 correct answers and was only incorrect 36 times. Wow. I mean, that is unbelievable. He had, I was wrong before, he had 16 most prolific performances in the show's 35 seasons. Wow. And 23 of the top 27 overall. Okay. So, unbelievable. Yeah, I, I got to stop you there. I know you're bouncing in your seat right now. We got to we gotta make a right turn. Unbelievable. Let's, okay. Are you done? I'm want, done. You want one more? I'm done. No, Jeopardy's good. I'm done with it now. <laughs> we'll send him away. All right. So, yesterday we, uh, we shared a story about uh, David Platt, McLean Bible Church in Virginia. Uh, Trump visited. We speculated sort of unannounced, and uh, he was on stage. Stage, sort of a blazer over his golfing polo with with his golf shoes still on. But um, Platt, I thought, actually gave a a, a powerful prayer uh, over Trump and leadership and blah, 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 yep. blah. But the Internet lost its mind and it was all sorts of like, is this an appropriate context? Should this should this have been handled differently? Was he actually announced? There was uh, there was some speculation uh, that he was there to uh, to kind of address the, the the shootings of Virginia, yeah. which wasn't addressed, and blah blah blah. So um, so Platt actually has uh, has gone on record now to to say a few things that I think helps give some context here. Yeah, but does also fan the flame of of some of my uneasiness, I guess, mm-hmm. with the whole thing. And and just to be clear, it's not uneasiness for me at least. Um, about praying for our leaders, nope. praying for our government. It's, it's none of that. And you'll, this will get a little clear as we go on. So he said, uh, I know that some within our church for a variety of valid reasons are hurt that I made this decision. He says, this weighs heavily on me. I love every member of this church and I only want to lead us with God's word in a mm. way that transcends political party and position, heals the hurts of racial division and injustice and honors every man and woman made in the image of God. My aim was in no way to endorse the president, his policies, or his party, but to obey God's command to pray for our president and the other leaders to govern in the way this passage portrays. Um, we don't want to do that just on this Sunday, Platt said, and we want to do that continually day in and day out. So I want to ask us now to bow our heads together to pray for our president. Mm. So what do you, what do you think about his, his response now in the wake of all this? I think he's really impressive, man. I think he was put in a really, uh, interestingly difficult spot yeah uh like it becomes pretty clear now you know and whatever the motives it becomes very clear now uh that that he was very caught off guard just very caught off guard like he said uh, finished his sermon and was kind of getting prepared for communion and then 
Uh, that you get, could you imagine that stepping off stage, kind of quieting your heart, getting ready for communion, and someone whispers in your, hey, the president of the United States is on his way and is asking for you to pray for him. I mean, right, right. what do you do in that situation? Right. Like, what are the thoughts? You haven't had 24 hours to sit on that and try to think about it. Well, we talked a little bit. About it. I think, honestly, what I would do is that can, can we have a prayer time afterwards? Yeah, whereas I told you yesterday, I probably just would have said, okay, let's go. And, but and- you said that you would do that. You thought more because of your awkwardness in the moment not because of a conviction that it's the right thing to do 100 percent. because like you said I, I i think there's something and you and i think feel this especially deeply as pastors there's something you know sacred about the sunday morning worship gathering and so um but yeah i i really appreciate that he came out and kind of gave a glimpse into not only how the mechanics went uh, just but also his own mindset like he believes strongly in praying for our leaders we believe strongly in that uh, but also, it wasn't necessarily his intention in that moment, in that service, to bring the president up and, right. and kind of make some people feel uncomfortable and take the focus away from Jesus and make other people just get up and cheer and when, make it turn and into he was that there moment. for like a grand total of like 16 minutes, 16 too, right? 16 minutes, yeah. Does yeah. that part, that I, maybe I'm getting hung up on that one. That's the part that frustrates me the most, I think. It feels, uh, it feels uh, photo op And so, is that, a word? is that a word? I mean, we'll, and make, we'll so, make it a word. Um, and I'm not even necessarily saying all photo ops are bad, but it feels photo op in the sense of like, June 2nd, Franklin Graham has said, pray for the president. I'm the president. I'm going to go show up to the biggest church in the area, one of the biggest churches, uh, asked to be on their stage and be prayed for and then leave. Like yeah, it right. feels, uh, they're just, I mean, regardless of what side of the aisle you want, it feels a little photo op and a yep. little disingenuous. And so I, at very worst, uh, it put Platt in a very awkward spot. And I think he handled it as best as it could have been handled. Can you nitpick, which people are doing all over Twitter? Yes. Uh, but I think he handled it well. I think his prayer was spot on and, uh, and we need to uh, be reminded, uh, regardless of what you think of the president or our current governor or our congressmen and women or our state reps, we need to be praying for him. Yeah, I, and I totally agree. And I hope that nobody is not hearing that from us. Yep. My, my concern is that it feels like Platt, maybe in a small way, was sort of used as a prop I think more than was. anything. And again, I'm really thankful that I wasn't faced with this decision mm-hmm. to have to make that call in that moment. But um, man, oh man, I, I, I think particularly like what you said, the Sunday morning uh, is such a sacred time yeah. and, uh, and we don't always wield it well, but it's something really, really worth thinking through. And uh, I think that we'll see remnants of discussions like this uh, for a long, long time to come. Maybe in election season. Yeah, we might probably see some likely. No kidding. <laughs> well, coming up next, many of you will know the name Simon Sinek. He's got a bunch of uh, viral Ted talks and he's sort of uh, this leadership guru. He wrote uh, start with why and uh, leaders go last. And he said something, a little bit ago that I found really fascinating about the difference between uh, leadership and authority. So we're going to talk about that coming up next on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey, everyone. How are you? I'm doing great. Thanks for asking. <laughs> My name is Ian Simpkins along with Brian Fromm. Every this time we come back, I'm like waiting. What's he going to do this time? <laughs> Ooh, I like that it's cr- I've created that anticipation. Well, maybe just for me. It might also be fear. You're like, okay, what is he? He's going to just come unhinged one of these days. It's not fear for me. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, you're, you're sitting just fine in your I'm cargo good. shorts. Yeah, you're having a having a grand old time. <laughs> I'd like to know from people, is cargo shorts a weird one? I, I've 
What's, what's the what's the question? Like cargo shorts, I, I feel like people are trying to tell me here in the office here that cargo shorts are like a, like a, like a dad move, or it's like. Why well, are you are you carrying a lot of tiny cargo? Like no, what is the what is the point of the cargo shorts? Fishing, maybe I'm gonna go fishing. You plan on going fishing sometime today? Is that is that I, on the docket? I think they are uh, they are pretty uh, versatile. <laughs> I like my shorts to be versatile. Oh, I don't even want to do what we're going to talk about. Let's just talk about cargo shorts. Are you for or against cargo shorts? Light them up. Let us know. You can find us on Facebook at the Common Good Radio Show, 1160hope.com, or you can text us, 68683, and then in the message body type CG, and then whether or not you like cargo shorts. Because I am pro cargo shorts. Yeah, clearly. Okay, where do you stand on cargo pants, though? Do not own a pair. What? No, to you, be honest with you, you're such a lover of the cargo versatility. Can I but don't right, go pants? We're, we're gonna need we're gonna need some honesty here. And here it is. <laughs> like I didn't go out being like I need a pair of cargo shorts. At some point, you like found these, them. Didn't you? At some point, these shorts were bought for me, probably by my wife. Sure. And I own one pair of them, and probably just wear them a lot. <laughs> <laughs> I really appreciate you confessing that to all of us. <laughs> all right, why don't we take a hard right turn from uh, our heated cargo short yeah. discussion? All right, so Simon Sinek uh, is a, a, a writer, a leader, an author, a speaker that I've I've appreciated for years. He's got a couple of mega viral TED talks. Yeah. He wrote the book Start with Why uh, and Leaders Eat Last, and uh, a bunch of really. I think compelling, interesting leadership books. If he was and, a philosopher, uh, he'd be called Simon the Cynic. <laughs> hey <-o! laughs> That was a pun. How, I'm in. How long have you been sitting on that one, by Did the you way? you see me like bouncing and giggling yeah. over here while you're talking? I can usually tell. Like, I got one. Yeah, I know. Sorry, I got go, one. No, that's totally fine. So Simon, he's, he's also, in my opinion, uh, he's kind of the king right now of these like short, concise but but really like thought-provoking concepts particularly around ideas of uh, organizational health and leadership and so I, just a couple of days ago i i was scrolling through facebook and i saw this one that i wanted to i wanted to pick your brain a little bit about yep. so let's hear it first and then we'll uh, we'll react so leadership has nothing to do with rank um, i know many people who sit at the highest levels of organizations who are not leaders mm. they have authority yeah. and we do as they tell us yeah. because they have authority over us mm. but we would not choose to follow them and yet I know many people at lower levels that have little authority, and yet they've made the choice to look after the person to the left of them, and they've made the choice to look after the person to the right of them, and we would trust them and follow them anywhere. Um, what, uh, what rank and, and authority give us is the ability to lead at greater scale. Um, but, it, uh, but the rank itself is not what makes you a leader. It just gives you a leadership mm. position. So what do you think of that? That's really powerful. It goes a lot into what we talked about yesterday. Right. Uh, but the fact that a couple things stood out to me. Rank is not what gives rank and authority don't make you a leader, uh, but it does give you greater scale to lead. Yeah. Like it gives you a greater platform. Right. Uh, two, when he said this concept of we would not, this concept of we choose who we follow, not necessarily based on rank, but based on something else, which I'm uh -huh. sure he gets into mm -hmm. more. Um, Cause he said, you know, just because you have rank or authority, but it still would not choose to follow you. Like that's right. a powerful statement. And uh, yeah, again, it's as people who lead and we all lead on some level, right? Like whether we lead church staffs or uh, radio stations or big organizations or your family, right? Uh, we all lead. And there is this uh, recurring theme of uh, what kind of leader am I? Am I a leader who leads from a place of authority? I, I have the title. Therefore, I can I can mess with your life. So therefore, you better follow right. me. Right. Or is there something more compelling that causes people, regardless of your rank and your authority, to be drawn to you? I think it's a fascinating 
Uh, it's a fascinating concept and one I think we all get, but like you said, he puts a good finger on. So I, I'm going to ask you this in a second. Actually, I'm going to propose the question that you think about it, good. react to what you just said. I'm going to tell you everything I'm about to do and then I'm going to do it. I like it. So, You're so mapping it out. For so us. based on some of that uh, response, I imagine it would be hard to differentiate between like true organic leadership and just charisma. Yes. Right. If, if part of the metric is, oh, people are drawn to him or her. You're like, oh, yeah, but people can be drawn to awful people or people that aren't interested in leadership or wouldn't yeah. necessarily make great leaders. And in another talk I heard him give, he was talking about um, leadership in the little things. He talked about it being like a muscle that grows. You know, mm. so sometimes we feel like, oh, he is or isn't the leader. She does or doesn't have the skill set. And he said, do you know what leadership is? Leadership is taking the last bit of coffee at the office break room and, and replenishing it, like mm. brewing more. It's when someone puts their signal on, um, it's, it's like pumping the brakes a little bit to let them in rather than speeding forward and not letting them in. He's like, those are all small acts of leadership. And wow. when you can be trusted in those small acts, then, then you'll eventually be trusted with more. And I was like, Oh, that sounds biblical. Actually, that's yeah. that, that principle though, that we often think of leadership as the person on stage or the person with the fancy office. He's like, no, no, all these little ways are the ways that we do or don't model leadership. And I'm mm. curious your thoughts, not only one to that concept, but two, how do we differentiate between leadership and, and just charisma? Yeah. Those are great questions, man. I think that the, to the first thing you said, I never thought of it that way, but mm. it is very biblical. It's very, uh, Jesus, you know, talks in leadership as, uh, the first shall be last or put others up front of yourself. And so the way you're describing it is exactly that. Like to go from a place of rank or authority, uh, and to say, you're all here to to serve me as the leader. Well, of course, you're going to expect somebody else to fill up the coffee. Oh, or you're going to expect yeah. somebody else to you know pick up the garbage or whatever else it might be. Um, hmm. It's always what made that show. And I don't know. I didn't watch it very often. But you remember that show on CBS, Undercover Boss? Oh, I loved that That's show. That's what always made that show so powerful. I didn't watch a ton of them. But it was taking the leader putting them in a place to interact with the people that they're supposed to be leading and getting a kind of a unfiltered view. And obviously it's TV, so I'm sure it's being edited yeah, right, and stuff. Right, but right, right, right. in theory, getting an unfiltered view of what they really thought of that person's leadership and right. that organization and who the leaders were in the organization actually and stuff like that. And that's all this is talking about. And when it comes to charisma, I guess that my my first answer to that would be that there's something about a long-standing nature. I think charisma kind of burns out fast, hmm. um, but there's probably or gets, or gets found out fast. Or found right? out yeah. fast. <laughs> yep. Uh, there's also man for me, a leader does such a good job of painting a picture of what could be, hmm. and and saying, "Hey, we're going at this together." And charisma doesn't always work that way. Um, and so I, I think that's probably the answer I'd give. I think charisma. Uh, like you said, either gets found out or burned out. Mm. Uh, it it kind of comes quickly and leaves quickly. Whereas uh, a true leader is kind of like you said, digging up, you know, uh, rolling up their sleeves and kind of going at it with the people, going at it with the people they're leading, taking them somewhere. Is it ever appropriate in in your understanding for a leader to not roll up his or her sleeves? Is it ever like better leadership? To not do that? Probably. Like, I've never led a huge organization, but the leader can't be doing everything down right. low. Like, that's why you hire people, right? Everyone's got their specific tasks mm. and their jobs. Like, you know, take a baseball team. The general manager, who's a leader, 
shouldn't be like, well, to serve them, I'm going to go be the bat boy today. Like that. Well, that would be a not a good use of your time. But mm. but the bat boy should still feel appreciated and and loved and, and led. Like, I guess that's how I would put it. A leader is called to lead uh, big picture and and. That's why you hire people, yeah, right? So right. that's how I'd answer that. Well, and I think, too, what's interesting about that example, actually, is if if a GM actually went and for a day did the roles of a bat boy, that thing would go viral. Yes. Sometimes the temptation is to, like, oh, I'm do- it's actually kind of the premise of Undercover Boss, actually. It's why yeah. we found it compelling. Like, oh, man, the guy at the top, the woman at the top is doing this, like, other, you know, there's something upside down about that yes. to our sensibilities. And I would love for us to see that as less and less upside down and more mm. like true servant leader. I think it's actually Lencioni who said at uh, summit a few years ago, he said, I'm tired of hearing the phrase servant leadership because there isn't any other kind. Uh, I thought, wow. Ugh, that was to me that that was like the whole the whole summit wrapped up in a single statement. And uh, to, to see whatever role that you're in, whether yes. that's uh, a parent or a worker or a CEO or a manager, whatever it is, uh, you have influence, as John Maxwell would say. Um, steward it well yes. in whatever environment or capacity that you find yourself That's in. That's great. That's great. Well, coming up next, here's, here's the headline. Uh, Iraqi Christian burned alive by ISIS three times, miraculously survives, and sees Jesus in a vision. You guys are not going to believe that this story. That is what we call a tease. No kidding. <laughs> We're going to talk about that coming up next on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simkins, along with Brian Fromm. I wish you all could see the songs that Brian chooses to dance to. This is one of them. It is the most, like, joyful, innocent thing I've ever seen. You just, like, your eyes light up. He's snapping. He brought streamers. It's a, it's a whole... <laughs> I'm doing a flag routine. John's cranking it back in. Yeah. Let's just have nine solid minutes. Of Brian dancing, which none of you can see. Yeah, but the music, it could be worse than just nine solid minutes of that music. That's beautiful. That's beautiful. True. Can you imagine, though, someone just dropping in? They're like, I thought this was talk radio. Why what are they just that? playing this it's a long song? Intro. This like indiscriminate song for a whole nine minutes. Uh, all right, so here's an article that you found, and um, <laughs> the headline alone is just bonkers. And I'm, I'm laughing, which I don't really mean to be doing. I'm laughing more out of just shock. Do you ever do that? Or yep. something like is so yep. mind blowing to you. They're like, I don't even know what to do with this. So here's the headline. And then uh, I'll let you kind of fill everybody in. Uh, Iraqi Christian burned alive by ISIS three times miraculously survives and sees Jesus in a vision. What's going on here? Yeah. And this is one of those stories where you go, could, could I actually believe this to be yeah, true? Right, like, right. This is craziness. Cause a lot of times, especially for us in the West, uh, we're a lot more rational and we don't, we, you know, we just kind of fall in the trap of not believing these things are possible. So I'm going to read it and uh, we'll discuss it, but also allow you to wrestle with it a, a little bit. An Iraqi Christian experienced a series of miracles while per- persecuted for his faith at the hands of Islamic extremists, including an encounter with Jesus and surviving terrorist attempts to burn him alive three separate times. Uh, the Yazidi man was interviewed for a documentary called hearts and hands, Iraq, uh, in it, he travels the world, the, the producer, to hear stories of those persecuted for their faith. And so here's what we learned. Uh, it says uh, that, that he was taken by ISIS. He was, they were going to stone him. And then ISIS members drenched him in 20 gallons of gasoline. But even though he was burned alive a total of three times, he somehow survived unharmed. And he writes, he says, and they burned me, but I didn't burn. 
Oh the Yazidi gosh. man was one of many Christians interviewed who said he believes he is, quote, called to be to the most persecuted, closed, dark, marginalized places. Uh, and so he goes on to just say these stories. He said he saw Jesus in a vision. And uh, it's just a crazy story. And when I read it, and I, I passed this on to you, when I read it, I was like, can that, can that be true? Like, can that be true? Like that he was doused with 20 gallons of gasoline and they lit him on fire three separate times and he didn't burn. And then they kind of left and. He saw Jesus in a vision like this is a total thing we read about in the the book of Acts in the early church, but it's not something that we run across very much nowadays. And so that was the first thing that I thought when I read it, besides being like, man, this is crazy. And I want to see this documentary. Yeah, right. Is uh, and there's some other things that came out of it for me. But the first one is just this. Like, do you do you read these and like go praise Jesus or do you read these and go, can that actually be true or a little bit of both? Well, and it, they didn't just want to stone him. They did also stone him. Yep. He says, they were hitting me with big rocks on my body, he recalled. The stones were fine, not affecting me. And I don't, man, you're, I, I mean, to be fair, um, in the tradition of our faith, we've believed crazier. Absolutely. <laughs> right? We, like, we preach it every week. But you did kind of touch on a thing that I want to explore a little more, though, is that it it does seem that so often in the West... We're fine with believing this kind of stuff happened during Bible times, which, again, even the phrase Bible times is a span of, you know, centuries. I mean, it's a big window of time to say Bible times, but we're fine believing stuff happened then. And for some reason to our like modern sensibilities, it's way harder for us to wrap our brains around this kind of stuff happening now. Why why do you think that is? Why do you think we struggle to, to actually believe that the stuff that we preach and the songs we sing can and does actually happen like right here in our modern context. I think we want to believe it, but I mean, I, you know, I can't point to many times in my life where I've seen something that's equivalent to the things we saw in the book of acts or in the early church or in this story. Uh, And so sometimes it's hard to believe something that not only have you not seen, but you've just never even really experienced at all. Like up close, not even close, not even close, nothing like it. And so, uh, you know, like you could get into our the fact that we're enlightened and rational minds and this, but I don't even think that's it. Like mm. I want to believe these types of stories. I just, you know, I have no experience. I have no kind of realm other than the book of Acts and stories of the early church to be able to go, oh, yeah, this does kind of happen. Jesus does intervene. But yet we do believe in a savior who intervenes like this and who does these kind of things. And so. Uh, you know, that that is where the wrestling becomes because you're like, man, could this guy, could this actually have happened? And then you're like, but yeah, it does. Like you just pointed out, it, it does mirror some of the things that we preach and it yeah, mirrors right. some of the things that we believe. And then I want to be like, praise God that he's still upholding his church. And it reminds us that there are parts of the world where there is persecution going on to the same level that persecution was going on in the early church right. and in the book of Acts. And uh, that that God seems to step in in these miraculous ways uh, in these places where it's much uh, needed. It's not the word, but I use it where it's much more needed. Hmm. Do you do you have any theological issues with the notion that this stuff still happens today? I don't. Not at all. I don't. So so theologically, your your brain is there. Why why then? How do you how do you uh, understand? How do you resolve the like? Oh, I believe it theologically, but I have a whole. I have a really difficult time believing it practically. Uh, yeah, I, again, I think it goes back to not see, like I, it's one thing to say God can and does do these types of things. It's another thing to say, yes, I've God can and does do these things and I've seen him do it, or I've even seen accounts of him doing it. And, um, so for you, it's like more or less like lack of evidence. 
that doesn't disprove it, but it just makes my mind. I, it, it's more like I don't have the mind to get around it. Okay, like, here, right, here's what I want to really ask then. Yeah. Do you ever have One of these times? I'm going to turn this question on you. Bro. That's fine. You please, please yeah, do. Yeah. Do, is, do you have any sense of cognitive dissonance when preaching a sermon about this? Is there any little voice in the back of your head? You're like, I'm saying this right now, but I'm actually really struggling to believe it. Man, I, I come across as somewhat like not having thought these through because I don't. When I preach the book of Acts, I don't go there like, ah, you know, maybe is, hmm. that, is this true or is it to you? Um, sometimes you do. Yeah. Can you I, think of a time? N- not specifically. No, but I, I think, uh, I mean, honestly, to be like full disclosure, more often what it feels like is if you're in the middle of preaching something that you know that you're terrible at, mm-hmm. like if I'm preaching about rest and margin in my head, I'm like. I'm awful at this. Like I just, yeah, I, I often feel like a hypocrite in that regard. There are certainly, and I, you know, my faith journey is all, it's had all sorts of twists and turns. And I actually have, uh, seen some crazy stuff and I've had close friends experience some crazy stuff. Um, but yeah, I, I mean, if I'm being really honest, sometimes you look at stuff in the Bible and you're like, Oh man, I want that here and now. I want to see that. Like I want to, you know, look at the, the story of the book of acts and the acts of the, like that kind of stuff to me, um, is so enthralling. It is, and and there is some there is a some unique ups and downs of preaching because, like any human, I think your faith sometimes takes twists and turns and dips and dives, and um, that doesn't change just because you have a microphone on. There Absolutely. there are sometimes I can think back even the last couple of years where like you read something you struggled to believe it that I now feel much more strongly about. But I don't know, man. I really do believe it when I when I often share with other people like we're we're all on a journey. Like I haven't arrived theologically or experientially just because I'm on stage with a microphone. Like I'm right. I'm wrestling through this stuff as well. And I think that if we were, you know, it's it's weird to put it that way. But if I was standing there and I saw this, like I would, I would again. I, the only way I know to describe it is like I don't feel like I have the mental capacity to even get my mind around it. Like that's kind of the I, point. I think. What am I even seeing here? It wouldn't yeah. be a point of disbelief. Like, oh, that's not happening right in front of me. God didn't do that. <laughs> it would just be like, even though in my mind I've known God works in this way, it would it'd be a whole nother thing to see it uh, and and to to experience that. I think would mm. be mind blowing. See, I, I think too that you, what you're touching on there, and this is maybe not a uh, a perfect summary, but like our need for wonder and awe, mm. just in general. Whether it's, I mean, I don't think it needs to be like experiencing being burned alive and surviving three nope. times, but I think that we're given opportunities all the time, all around us, to be captivated by who God is and what He's doing in the world. And I think so often our schedules are packed way too full, yeah. and and I and everything is so. Um, pre-planned that sometimes I wonder like, man, if God wanted to show up in our worship spaces Mm. and do something nuts, would we even have space to allow that? Like, Mm. would, would we be upset that, you know, we went eight minutes over because of it? You know what I mean? Like, (laughs) like that's, that's sometimes the place of conviction that I go like, man, it's one thing to read stories like this and say, Oh God, I want to, I want to see that. And I can't help but wonder sometimes God isn't saying back, like, do you even have space for that? Yeah. Do you, have you made space for me to do that? It's good. Well, coming up next, it's going to be a a little bit of a right turn, if that's okay. But I want to ask this question. What is the difference between performance music and worship music? Mm. Is there a difference? And we're going to talk about that a little bit. Coming up next on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins. Brian Fromm is also 
in the room. You can, he says kind of. <laughs> <laughs> Brian Fromm is he's 85% here, 50% he's in Florida. <laughs> oh, I wish. <laughs> Although now when you get into that time of year where Florida is just really hot, it's yeah, kind of nice here. Yeah, most Florida-y. Yeah, you know, and they, they get all, now you know with them being all humid, they're going to get all crazier down there. <laughs> We have more Florida stories to do at the end of it every show. Been, it's been kind of humid around here too, and I feel like it's just making everybody crazy. Like nobody, does anyone really like humidity? Like really enjoy it's it? So funny. Do you know what I just thought you just said? What? Because you just said, does anybody really like humidity? Yeah. And it sounded like that you just said, knowing the church you lead, does anybody really like community? <laughs> And I was like, well, that's a, that's a right turn as we were talking about the weather. But No, I meant the TV show with... Uh... <laughs> I don't think that uh, that people like humidity. But right now, <laughs> after all we've been through, just anything warm feels nice. That's true. But it's just crazy out, man. Like, I don't know. I, I, I can't even get around it. I was at my soccer... My soccer's game. My daughter's <laughs> soccer game this weekend on Saturday. And it was like... No joke, probably 75 degrees. Everybody's in shorts and a t-shirt. And this weird like breeze came in. And it's like nothing I have ever felt. It dropped like 15 degrees when the breeze touched. Like it wasn't like over a span of a half. It was in like in an instant. I don't know. You are passionate about this breeze uh, right we now. To, we you, need Tom Skilling on here. Okay. <laughs> Tom Skilling. <laughs> All right. So here's what I want to talk about. Uh, there's an article from Christianity Today, and it says six important differences between performance music and worship music, mm-hmm. which is something that as a musician, I've always been really intrigued by. And without getting too much into the weeds, I think by and large, a lot of this is going to feel like judging motives or whatever. So I realize that's tricky and, sure. and probably maybe even a dangerous segment for us to do in the first place. But these six are really good. So I want to just read the six. One at a time and kind of get your response. We're both pastors, so this is kind of like in our universe a little bit. Right. But um, people, I think ca- people care about music. They totally do, right? <laughs> yes. They do. And I think it's, I think there, it raises important conversations about how we actually discern these things. So uh, it says one, in performance, the focus is on the musicians. In worship, the focus is on Jesus. Hmm. Agree or disagree? I agree. Uh, it's hard, like you said, to, um, to guess motive or focus, if you will. But you're right. Like I went to the Bon Jovi concert last year and it was about Bon Jovi. It wasn't about what he was singing right, about. Right. right? Uh, you go to you when, when worship music, particularly on a Sunday morning is being sung or led. It is supposed to take your eyes off of yourself and put it on Jesus. You are worshiping Jesus. So, yeah, absolutely. Well, and, and again, I'm not knocking stage stuff yep. or, li- or any of that stuff. You know, church is big and small. I've all kind of wrestled with this. In fact, you know, for a long while at, uh, at Poplar Creek, we, we met in the round as a way to kind of try to counteract mm. some of that. But, and there's, I think there's ways to, you know, so like one of the ways the article suggests is have multiple different lead singers. Like, so it doesn't just become about, you know, one person yeah. all the time and making sure that you're queuing the congregation and to actually, you know, join as well. Uh, number two, in performance, those on stage might be the only ones singing. In worship, everyone should be singing along. Yeah, I think what do you is, think of this one? I think this is a big deal. I think that uh, that through the generations, right, the, the point of one of the points of congregational singing, if you will, in a church is that everybody sings. And yeah. you, so you have songs that people know and they're kind of passed down. Uh, and that's that is becoming an issue, I think, a little bit more mm. difficult. And, um, you know, it, it's I, I do think that the purpose of singing on a Sunday morning is to 
take the con- I just said it before, but it is to take the congregation and to uh, point them to Jesus. We are collectively singing praise to him. And so when it's more about watching the person or the band singing, that's mm-hmm. probably losing its purpose a little bit. Well, and there's some good research, too, that there's been a, a pretty uh, steady decline in participation. And again, I want to tread lightly here, too, because I know for a lot of people, they're like, I'm just not a singing type. And that's not like a way yep. that I connect. So for us to say you know, black and white, like people are connecting if they're singing and they're not connecting if they're not singing. I think there's probably more right. nuance to that, but it's a good distinction. Yep. But number three in performance, the words should support the melody in worship. The melody should support the words. Mm. Wow. What do you think of this one? So I'm not a musician. So right. I put that, you know, I see words like melody. I'm like, melody. No, I'm just <laughs> um, but I do get the point that especially, uh, one of the great critiques of more modern songs versus, say, hymns of a long time ago is um, is the loss of the importance of the of the meaning of the words or the mm. depth of the words. And that um, I guess what they're trying to say here is that that what we're trying to do in worship is we are singing specific words of praise uh, to our Heavenly Father. And so he says uh, words matter. Words yeah. matter first. In fact, Carl uh, Vader's the writer of this writes. So I love what he says here. He says that this is why it's harder to write a great worship song. When you're writing a song for performance, you only need a great musical structure. If you also have great lyrics, it's a bonus and it can make your song a classic, but it's not needed. A great worship song, however, needs strong lyrics and music that enhances them. But the lyrics must lead the music, not vice versa, mm. which is hard to do. Uh, number four in performance, the integrity of the musicians is secondary in worship. The integrity of the musicians is essential. Yes, this is a big one. <laughs> this Huge, is a right? biggie. Uh, like I said, like to use the concert I went to again last year, the, the Bon Jovi concert. I didn't care what Bon Jovi was doing or his guitarist was doing or whatever. Or even like his lifestyle before or after that. That's what I mean. That's right. what I mean. Uh, like with... Uh, uh, most, if not all, I should say all things within a church, like the integrity of the person leading matters. Yeah. And so that's true for the one doing the preaching. Uh, but it's absolutely yes. true for the one leading the worship, leading the singing. And so, yes, this one. Amen to this one. Yeah. And I, I wonder, too, if there's a distinction between uh, leading or serving here, because I know plenty of people. He kind of makes the case that he doesn't think non-Christians should be in the band at all. Mm. But I know plenty of worship leaders who are like, that's actually part of how they engage yeah. with non-believers. Yeah. They were the ones leading but they often had non-believers, non-church people playing guitar and playing in the band. So I'm I'm a little torn on that one, to be yeah. honest. And I, I probably much more lean towards my friend's posture of like, man, this is a way for them to participate even before they even know fully what they believe. Yep, I'm okay with that. Uh, number five, virtuoso musical flourishes can attract you to performance, but they can distract from worship. Ah, that's an interesting one. Uh, I, you could speak better to this as a drummer and this and that, but I do know that just my, my person, me personally, uh, when there's those parts of those worship song where it's the guitarist just playing or it's the drummer going and like, it's, I, it, it, it always bothers me a little bit. Does it? Yeah. One of the greatest compliments I ever got, uh, from, from, uh, playing at a, a chapel space. Actually, he was on the show while you were gone. Dr. Warren Anderson, one of my favorite human beings on, on planet earth. We, we, uh, were done with chapel and he was crying. He gave me this big bear hug and he just said, thank you because whatever you did up there made me forget that you were there entirely. Yeah, there you go. And I remember thinking like, 
that's the go- as a worship drummer and people would often say it with good intentions but when they were like man I was watching you the whole time I was yeah. like oh man yep. that's that's not the point and I I think the other side of that though is for people that are really talented sometimes um this is a cultural thing because like riffs and kind of getting to flex some of those muscles can be an act of worship. Yes. So I don't make a blanket knocking of any of that, but I think it's a good consideration. Mm-hmm. All right, last one, number six. Uh, performers need to be skilled musicians. Worship leaders need to be committed good. worshipers. Good. What do you think of that? I think that's great. Uh, yeah. it, this goes back to the integrity of the worship uh, leader. There's always, um, you know, when we pray with our worship team before a Sunday morning, uh, I always pray for them that they would be able to worship Yeah, like that. It would be a time of worship for them and not a time of performing. And that's yes. what this is getting at. Like uh, the, the best worship leaders on a Sunday morning are going to lead you into worship. They're not going to leave you in awe of their skill. And totally. it might be their skill that helps lead you into worship, but totally. it's not about their skill. This is what I love what he says right here. When leading worship through music, which is such a good distinction because worship and music are not synonymous. Worship Correct. is bigger than that. When leading worship through music, we should strive for excellence. Not so people can stand in awe of our performance, but so people will stand in awe of Jesus. Worship teams should practice relentlessly to achieve musical excellence. In doing so, they should strive to also be so in sync with each other that they're not thinking so much about the chord changes as they are about being active participants Mm. in the worship they're leading. And then he says, styles come and go, but worship lasts. Man, that's such such beautiful insight. I think that's so important. And I hope that if you're at a church or you're a musician or a worship leader, that you're, you're challenged by that list. And you know, this is on our Facebook. We'd love to know, do you agree? Do you disagree? What would you add? What would you take away? Cause I think this is a conversation that we'll probably keep having for a long Absolutely. time. Absolutely. Coming up next. Here's, here's the headline. I hated my neighbor. And then one lesson led to a life changing friendship. That's what's coming up next on the common good right here on AM 1160. Hope for your life. It's time for a conversation about the things we share in common. Our common hopes, our common fears, our common struggles. Together, we'll wrestle with the questions that we all have about the issues that affect our lives. This is The Common Good. Now, here are your hosts, Brian Fromm and Ian Simpkins. Everyone, welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, along with Brian Fromm. You can find us on Facebook, The Common Good Radio Show, or 1160hope.com. And Brian, one of the things I love about this show and our conversations together is a lot of times we're diving into topics that we don't have answers to. We've even probably changed our minds since we've followed a story or followed an idea. We get to read from authors and places that maybe we otherwise wouldn't be reading from. Right. And one of the things we talk a lot about is creating space creating space for dialogue when we're caught in our echo chambers and our confirmation biases, when we're so convinced that the other person is wrong, what would it look like to hit pause for a second and actually lean in rather than lean away? And every once in a while you come across a story that just sort of hits you like a ton of bricks. Mm -hmm. So this will be a little bit of a, um, of a shift in terms of style or approach for us. But I, I came across this story and I want to just Read it in its entirety, if that's okay. And it's not out of, not that this is a bad thing, but it's not out of, like, Christianity Today. Or right, something. Washington Post. This is a person writing out of the Washington Post, and you and I, like we were going to do, we were going to kind of read it off air and then kind of pontificate about 
forgiveness and grace, which we will do. Right. But man, this story, like a parable of Jesus is just so true. Not only is it true, but it's so powerful. So you were like, why don't we just read it? Yeah. So I'm just going to sit back and listen to you read, man. So this, and this is what I would encourage you to do if you're like multitasking right now. If, if you have eight minutes to spare, stop multitasking for a second. Mm-hmm. Just, just kind of stop what you're doing. I want you to hear this story because I think it'll become really clear uh, why we find this so powerful. So it's from the Washington Post uh, by Peggy Waymeyer. And it begins this way. It says, May 31st, uh, whenever I wonder what it will take for us to stop from attacking our adversaries, I think back to my first experience of hating my neighbor. I was 27 when I landed an early morning anchor job at the ABC News affiliate in Dallas. Each weekday, I set my alarm for 2.30 a.m., showered, put on makeup, and dressed as though I, was, uh, I were competing in a fashion show. Then I jumped in the driver's seat of my blue Honda Accord and sped south on the highway. The biggest impediment to my success as a morning news anchor wasn't the hours, my wardrobe, or my on-air delivery. It was the enemy next door. The next-door neighbor had a Yorkshire Terrier that barked incessantly in the evenings, running along the chain-link fence just outside my bedroom window. To get enough sleep to function in my job, I was under the covers with the lights out no later than 8 p.m. Mm. I asked my neighbor to please take her dog inside for the night. She ignored my request. Morning after morning, I dragged myself out of bed, smeared concealer under my eyes, and guzzled coffee to make up for the lost sleep. My resentment boiled like hot lava. How could an eight-pound dog sabotage my best efforts to excel in a competitive television market? I lay in bed at night, listening to the dog's shrill bark, and imagined all the ways uh, I could silence it. It wasn't pretty. When I began to fantasize about lacing a juicy steak with poison and dropping it over (laughs) the fence, my dark passion caught me by surprise. Who was I becoming? This woman who sang in church on Sundays and on Mondays dreamed up ways to hurt her neighbor's pet. Instead of silencing the Yorkie, my husband and I filed a noise complaint with the city. The court set a hearing date for December 24th. My neighbor, in her retaliation, baited a trap on her property with cat food, lured my tabby over the fence, and sent him to the pound. By the time my husband's parents arrived for their Christmas visit, I was obsessed. My in-laws were my heroes and spiritual mentors, so I asked them what they would do about the dog. If you're going to be a follower of Jesus, my father-in-law said, you'll love your enemy and not sue her. He was a man who had suffered in a Japanese uh, prisoner of war camp during World War II and had forgiven his brutal captors. Over the years, I had seen him epitomize uh, what it looked like to love your neighbor as yourself. As Christmas approached, I had to choose which voice would control my next move, the contemptuous one that demonized the neighbor or an empathetic and self-sacrificing one being seriously tested. I walked reluctantly across the driveway dividing our house, climbed the front steps, and knocked on her door. My neighbor faced me with a steely grimace. What do you want? She asked. I came to apologize, I said. I'm sorry I've ramped up this conflict by taking you to court on Christmas Eve. I don't want to fight anymore. If there's anything I can do to be a better neighbor, I hope you'll let me. To surrender my peaceful night's sleep left me feeling powerless, even humiliated, but as I watched the surprise register on my neighbor's face, something else happened in me. I felt lighter, freer, released from an ugly burden. As our brief exchange ended, I glanced past her shoulder into her cluttered living room where a toddler sat coloring. My rage inexplicably gave way to compassion. A few years later, a few weeks later, Laura, I'll use that name, crossed the driveway to knock on my door this time. You said you wanted to be a good neighbor, she said, looking at the floor. I run out of grocery money for the week, and I'm wondering if you could lend me enough to buy milk for my daughter. I can pay you back in a few days. Really? 
I wanted to say to God, isn't this a little much? <laughs> I found a $20 bill. It wasn't long before Laura and I began talking over the fence about our neighborhood and her little girl, whom I'll call Cassie. She repaid the milk money, the dog stopped barking, and I came to know Laura as a bright and kind woman with warm smile. Over time, I learned she had been deeply wounded and that she struggled with mental illness, much like my own mother. She told me she had one friend, and it was me. When her brother died of AIDS, Laura came to my house on the day of his funeral and asked if I would listen to his favorite song with her. She didn't want to do it alone. When the music ended, I was unsure of what to say. I raised for her hand and asked if I could pray for her. She nodded, teary-eyed. We were neighbors for seven years before Laura and I moved to different parts of town. I attended her daughter's wedding, but eventually we lost touch. Two weeks ago, on Facebook, Laura's daughter said her mother was in the hospital and close to death. I called Cassie and asked if I could come. Yes, please come, Cassie said. You were her only friend. It would mean a lot. I rushed to the hospital. When I walked into her room, Laura was still breathing, though her eyes were closed and the doctors didn't know how much she could understand. Cassie told me that her mother had attempted suicide. I leaned over the bed, my face close to Laura's. Laura is Peggy, your friend, and I'm here, I whispered. You're not alone. I love you. God loves you. The silence reminded me of the day she and I sat in my house listening to her brother's song. What words could comfort her now? I pulled out my cell phone and googled Bible verses for the dying and began to whisper into the ear of my former enemy. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for thou art with me. Laura opened her eyes briefly and closed them again. I could swear she knew I was there, but in truth, I'll never really know. What I do know is that as she died, Laura handed me a bittersweet gift. Years before we met, my mother, who also battled depression, had taken her life in the same way. She lived across the country. I couldn't get to her in time to say goodbye. I never got to stroke my mother's hair or remind her that she was loved. Now, a woman I once called my enemy was freeing me from that long-held regret and sorrow. Laura died that night. I'll never forget her, nor the friendship that taught me that it's likely to take much more than a better political candidate, cable news show, or party platform to reverse the tide of hatred and revenge that is tearing this country apart. Maybe it will have to start with us walking across the driveway that divides us and knocking on a door. It's pretty powerful. It's, it's, it is, man. I mean, that is an unexpected story to read today. (laughs) And it was, uh, it is such a powerful reminder that we can yell and we can, we can yell about big structures within our culture, but that ultimately we are called to show love and kindness to the people across the, across the yard, over the fence, in the cubicle next to us. And that, um, you know, sometimes that looks like not, not fighting for your own rights. Sometimes it's just loving and that everybody's got a story, right? right. Like that's what we lose sight of so often is that, uh, that I love that part of the story where she said when she opened the door and I looked over her shoulder and could see the clutter and could see right. the toddler, like everybody's got a story and a struggle. Right. And, uh, as Christ followers, we're called to enter into those struggles and that gets messy and that takes time. Uh, but that's what's going to and not just advance the gospel, but change the tide of a culture that so often is angry and hate, hate filled. And she wouldn't have seen the toddler had she not actually gone over there. Correct. Right? It's so easy from the safety of our cell phones and our computer screens to make up a story about somebody else. Right. 
and about their motives and who they really are and until we're actually standing in their doorway, like literally or metaphorically looking over their shoulder and seeing the life that they're in. Absolutely. How, how are we to know? And I think, uh, man, Samuel Johnson, right? Uh, kindness is in our power even when fondness is not. Even mm-hmm. when the dog is barking, even when that coworker stomps in your last nerve, what would it look like to lean in with kindness and love? That does to me feel a little bit like the way of Jesus yeah. uh, in a world that so often glorifies duking it out, yelling louder. And I think um, I think this sets up what I want to talk about next actually really well because uh, Mr. Rogers was just honored with an annual statewide day mm-hmm. of kindness in Pennsylvania. And I don't know if you know how much I love Mr. Rogers, but this wasn't just a, uh, a television guy. I think this was a deeply thoughtful, prophetic voice. And yeah. uh, this idea of kindness is a, a theme we're going to continue with. That's what's coming up next on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. to the common good i said it like they just walked in on us like hey oh, hey. Guys. hey oh hey what's going on guys hey, nice to have you here come on in why don't you join us why don't you be my neighbor oh uh, that's a little segue. bit of a tease look at me i'm also on a segue so <laughs> that works both ways <laughs> can you imagine there's no desk you were just, just here going around it's just you and i both on a segue just like wobbling back and forth in front of a microphone that's really it would funny. sound kind of like this that's how the whole show would <laughs> be so be so oh Sorry, I thought that'd be funny, and the uh, producer just told us that um, it made no difference whatsoever. Maybe if I did it more like this, that that's funny. bigger. This joke has run its course. Anyway, you can find <laughs> us on Facebook at the Common Good Radio Show or 1160hope.com. And uh, I teased it up. This is just going to be like a feel-good segment, and I make no apologies for doing it because I think it's fantastic. Mr. Rogers honored with first annual statewide day of kindness in Pennsylvania. Yeah, it's really cool. It's called... Uh uh, I didn't even know this. You grew up, you, we were just talking off air, you grew up watching Mr. Rogers, right? Yeah. So obviously I'm fully aware of Mr. Rogers, but I did not grow up watching him. Uh, it probably says a lot shame. about my personality. My wife. He still came out of Christian, though. Huh? I, uh, but not kind. Uh, <laughs> my wife, uh, her family watched Mr. Rogers all the time in Sesame Street. I didn't really grow up watching Sesame Street either. What? No, I know it all now because I'm this my kid. explains so much about I you. I know. I don't know my numbers and I mean is what it comes down to. <laughs> Uh, but it says 143. It's a code that beloved children's television star Fred Rogers would say to his friends in the neighborhood. And it stands for the number of letters in the words, I love you. Like, did you know that? I did know that. Yeah. Did you really? Yeah. I Man, did. That's all new news to me. I'm, I mean, we still like you. Now, Pennsylvania Governor Tom Wolf has declared May 23rd, 143 day. You know why he picked that day? Why? It's the 143rd day of the year. No kidding. A day to celebrate and honor the Pennsylvania native's kindness by following his example. According to the Fred Rogers Center, the number was a reminder of compassion, and it meant a lot to everyone's favorite neighbor. And so Pennsylvania, obviously this already happened, but Pennsylvania wrote this, how to celebrate 143 day. One, embrace the spirit of kindness of Pennsylvanian Fred Rogers. Two, do something kind for your neighbors. And three, spread the love by using the hashtag 143day in Pennsylvania. Uh, and so it's really cool. It's a day of statewide kindness to honor him. And uh, really, uh, you know, it's a great kind of, a, like we said, an honoring, a remembering of Fred Rogers and all that he meant. Uh, but there's something that strikes me as just unbelievable. And that's this, is that it feels like Fred Rogers, Mr. Rogers himself, and what he taught is almost resonating now more yeah. than even when he was on TV and yeah. like he was well known. 
And I've got my thoughts as to why that is. But like there were right two documentaries or two movies about about Mr. Rogers that came out just this year. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I think one of them was last year. It doesn't matter. Okay, recently, <laughs> recently. And so there's this. There, there's so. Uh, let me ask you, as somebody who grew up watching Mr. Rogers in the greater Detroit area, yeah. Why do you think Mr. Rogers seems to be being embraced and resonating even more now than when he was he was alive and uh, on air? I'm not sure of this, but I'm I'm confident it has something to do with his love of cardigans. I think that <laughs> I think that's really the secret sauce. Uh, no, I think honestly. There we 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 live in such a kindness deficient era right now, um, and I think uh, like uh, there's a a writer named Samuel Johnson who I've loved this quote for a long time. He said, um, "Kindness is in our power even when fondness is not." That's good. This idea that like we don't have to like everybody to be decent to people, and I feel like um, there's lots of lovely, beautiful stories, but we're also seeing like louder and louder shouting matches, and I think. A guy who kind of lived by the legacy that people matter yep. and kindness matters. Um, I feel like that is a voice so needed because uh, we're just seeing less and less of it. In fact, just as you were talking, I just I was looking for a specific Fred Rogers quote that I was thinking of, and I found this website, and it's uh, it's ten, it's just called Ten Lovely Quotes from Mister Rogers." <laughs> which, like, what a can I just read a couple of them? I would love because they, they they preach. So powerfully. The one that I actually found is, is the number one listed. It says, um, deep within us, no matter who we are, there lives a feeling of wanting to be lovable, of wanting to be the kind of person that others like to be with. And the greatest thing we can do is to let people know that they are loved and capable of loving. Mm. That I mean, that That's was great, preach, right? All right yep. so, can I just share a couple of others? We got some time. Yeah, keep going. Uh, love isn't a state of perfect caring. It's an active noun like struggle. To love someone is to strive to accept that person exactly the way he or she is right here and now. He goes on and says, love and trust and the space between what's said and what's heard in our life can make all the difference in the world. I mean, they, like it just goes on and on. He says, uh, love is like infinity. You can't have more or less infinity, and you can't compare two things to see if they're equally infinite. Infinity, infinity just is, and I think that's the way it is with love. Hmm. Now, another quote from uh, an episode, episode uh, 1665, the toughest thing is to love somebody who has done something mean to you, especially when that somebody has been yourself. Oh. Like, that's... I mean, yeah. this is... I, I kind of long for this kind of programming for my kids thinking about some of the stuff and and there's still good stuff out there. In fact, we we're like fully in Daniel Tigerland, which is a ah, sort of spin-off really? from Mr. Rogers, but or like this one, uh listening is where love begins, listening to ourselves and then to our neighbors. Hmm. Like that's just that's gold and I feel like the reason that he's resonating so much now is because everything that I just said seems to be in short supply right now. Yep. It really feels like we are at a a kindness deficit. Yep. And for someone like him who didn't just say these things, there's like a believability to him. Yes. You know, like it's one thing you ever like heard somebody say something about kindness, but you just didn't believe that they actually were a kind, kind person. Yes, yeah, right, yes. right. You're like, I believe what you're saying, but you're screaming it at me. And it feels disingenuous. Like, I feel like Fred you Rogers. You mad when right. you're saying this to me. Fred Rogers just seems like one of those guys that when I hear him say it, I go, I, I believe you. Yeah. Like, I believe, I think there's, I just think there's something to that. Yeah, absolutely. And I just, I think there is a longing for this Fred Rogers kind of uh, character. And it wasn't a character. This was actually him. But I mean, within our, 
our culture simply because we don't live in a culture of kindness anymore. Probably maybe we never did, but now it feels like our unkindness is so is so out there and so apparent uh, that you're like, man, I just I, I long for some people to be nice. And so you get this guy <laughs> and Fred Rogers, who knows what he was like personally, but all reports are that he seemed to be actually who he said he was. And was just a kind person. And right. I think that when we find that, we want to just, I think we want to latch on to it. And so now, when, when when all these years later, we're like, man, well, we didn't know what we had when we had them. And, and I think so much of our public discourse is so edgy and angry and fighting and everything's a hill to die on. And we're just, it's not so much, am I am I right, but how much, how, how, how can I you know, make them look wrong. And like, we just live in an unkind culture and we live, uh, you know, social media, cable news, all this stuff. Like how could you picture Fred Rogers in one of those squares on like CNN or Fox? No, that wasn't, wouldn't have been, he would have gotten, it just wouldn't have been his thing. Right. And so I think we long for somebody who embodied all those quotes that you're reading. Hmm. That's what we want for our kids. But quite frankly, it's what we want for ourselves. So why do you think it's so rare? Like if people, if you're right. I don't know. People really truly want it. Like did Fred Rogers just luck out like in his DNA? Like, ah, he's just, he was wired for kindness and the rest of us are just way bigger jerks than he is. I I honestly, I wrestle with that because I don't know because maybe we are all, maybe I don't give us enough credit and most of us uh, are wired like Fred Rogers, but just everything we see held up in front of us on TV isn't like that. Maybe it's that, but I don't, I don't, maybe you have a good answer. Cause I don't know. Cause that, that does beg the question. If that's, what's all that we, if we all want that, then why doesn't our culture look like that? But we all, we also know our culture doesn't look like that. I think it's hurt. I think it's pain. Hmm. I think hurt people hurt people. You know, I think, um, and you got good quotes. I think, no, that's not mine. I can't, I think that's okay. Henry now. And, and, and Richard Rohr, I think is the one who said the pain that isn't transformed is transmitted. Hmm. Like the hurt that we don't deal with will eventually come out in our interactions some way. Like, you know, and some people are better at others than like stuffing feelings down. It may be a year, maybe five years, but that whatever that pain is, if we don't deal with it and you and I, you know, come from kind of a, a Christian perspective, if we, right. don't, if we don't allow God to actually uh, transform that, it will eventually be transmitted mm. and usually in ways that we don't want. And I honestly, this is going to sound so hokey, man, but that has helped me so much when encountering other angry people in my life mm. because I, you know, I can, I can get really defensive yeah. and I can be like quick with my words in a way that's not helpful. And I've gotten better. I'm not great at it, but I've gotten better that when someone's being really just mean to me mm-hmm. to see, to, to look at them and say, oh, I think you're hurt. Mm. I think someone hurt you. I think, I think there's pain that you haven't dealt with. And that's why that's, I think that's why you're coming at me this way. And so yeah. I, I just, I, this is like a feel good story. And if it's okay, I just want to end with one more quote from Fred Rogers. Absolutely. I just think like, I don't know, there's something about the the wisdom, not only of his time, but that applies now that I think we would all do well to listen to. He says, um, Love seems to be something that keeps filling up within us. The more that we give away, the more we have to give. When we love a person, we accept him or her exactly as is. The lovely with the unlovely, the strong along with the fearful, the true mixed in with the facade. And of course, the only way we do it is by accepting ourselves the same way. Hmm. I just think, man, what a, what a, really what a call that is. That, start, that, that begins to feel like 
healing. Yes. That feels like shalom to me a little yes. bit. Maybe maybe that is the helpful way forward. Well, coming yes. up next, simple headline. Uh, I want to talk about this. Three marks of humility in leadership. We've talked a lot about how important this is in leadership, and I wanted to kind of take a deeper dive than maybe we have in the past. Yeah. Uh, what, are, what are those marks of humility in leadership? That's coming up next on The Common Good right here on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey everyone, welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins along with Brian Fromm. You can find us on Facebook at The Common Good Radio Show, 1160hope.com. You can use the hashtag The Common Good if you want. Is that a thing or are we trying to start that? I mean, it's already there. <laughs> it's been used, probably not by us. No, it's also been used by us. I don't know how to define whether or not it's a thing. Uh, let's make it a thing. Okay. <laughs> Hashtag the common good. Okay, yeah, that'll do it. That's uh, that's how every viral tweet starts. <laughs> Let's make it a thing. All right, so we we uh, we talk a good deal, I think, about uh, leadership and postures of leadership. And unfortunately, sometimes I feel like our jumping off point is like negative examples we see. So we see something in news or media, and we're like, "Hey, is that is that how we should be leading?" Right. So I thought maybe. Maybe instead of like highlighting like, hey, here's how leadership is really broken. And here's an example of it being modeled really poorly. Uh, we talk a little bit about some of the positives and hopefully. And one of the things that we have said before, too, like the Maxwell quote, the John Maxwell quote, uh, leadership is influence. Mm. And I don't think there's a person on planet Earth that doesn't have some influence, whether it's your coworkers or your family or your right. small group or it's a church or it's a company. So I think this idea of leadership applies to everybody and just is a matter of looking at your context and uh churchleaders.com had this uh this brief but pretty compelling article called three marks of humility in leadership and he says uh, we tend to despise pride in others and we recognize its destructive power the scripture teaches us though that pride goes before destruction and haughty eyes before a fall we long to serve with leaders who are humble i think that's true yep and we are wise to walk in humility ourselves but what does humility in leadership actually look like and yesterday you were actually talking uh briefly about some of your struggle with sort of that boss leader dichotomy yep, yep. and how sometimes y- you have felt that you've been taken advantage of mm-hmm. because you were maybe did you use the word passive maybe you were too collaborative yeah, or yeah. too uh, i think both work i can be uh, a little too pa- passive is a good word or uh, and I don't want to put words in your mouth. I yeah, don't. No, no, it, it's absolutely right. It's funny you bring this up because I went home and I actually li- that's the segment I went back and listened to. I was like, how did I actually sound? In that? <laughs> I was fine with it. That was good. Uh, because I think sometimes when we share for others, it's helpful because they're like, yeah, that's I, I get that. That's me, too. And so um, it was a very helpful discussion looking back because going, I want to be that. Right. Uh, and, and with this article, I do think. It's hard to point out a humble leader until you're under a leader who's not humble. And well, and that's kind of my point, right? Sometimes we only identify the we bad know parts. It. We know right. it. But then then that helps you uh, when you look at it against that and you go, oh, wait, but this guy or girl, that, that that's a humble leader. That's what somebody I want to follow. Sometimes it's hard to know that until <laughs> you've seen the bad side. So I do like the positive side of this. What is actually a humble leader look like right you know what are the markers of them and i and i think it's i think this would be an interesting discussion too because with so many prideful leaders it does sort of raise the question like why why doesn't that why doesn't that trip our trigger more like why doesn't that raise more concerns earlier i think sometimes we expect leaders to fit this certain stereotype and so if like oh well if he's arrogant or she's arrogant yep we get it because you're the leader and i'm like i don't i think the leader's 
all the more need to set the tone for the organization. Anyway, so Absolutely. The, fir- the first one uh, is attitude of gratitude, not entitlement. Leaders can move from gratitude to entitlement by believing their position or their performance entitles them to certain things. It's mm-hmm. impossible to be filled with humility and a sense of entitlement at the same time. Whenever we feel they were owed something is because we have forgotten that God is the one who gives all good things. Humble leaders believe all they have received is from the Lord, including the team uh, they lead and their work ethic and intensity. All is from him. When we walk in humility, we're grateful for mm. all he provides. What do you think of that? That's really good. And again, not to focus on the negative aspect, like the un- the non-humble leadership, but this is a lot of what we've seen go wrong in the church world, yeah, right? Yeah, so right? You start reading these articles and uh, where, where people seem to be entitled to just ridiculous amounts of things. And then you go, well, you, you helped point out a couple weeks ago. Like, I don't think they started that way. Right. Right. But this sense the of drift, en- once this sense of entitlement enters in, it just grows and grows and grows. And all of a sudden you think you're entitled to the world where right. before. And so I do think, and, and there's this gratitude. I like how they put it. Like, Humble leaders believe that all they've received from the Lord, including the team that they lead. It's like, yes. Oh, they're not there to serve me. Right. right? And, and it can be easy when you lead a team of people to drift into seeing how can they further my, uh, my agenda or what I want, as opposed to like, man, I get the opportunity to lead these people. Totally. And, and that's a wholly different, um, different uh, perspective. And, and I think he's right. I think, a, a humble leader, a good leader is going to have gratitude towards just the fact that they get to lead and the people they get to lead, which is a discipline. I, you know, if I've learned anything from being a pastor for however long I've been a pastor is that you don't, I don't think you stumble into gratitude. I don't think you fall uh, backwards into it. I think it is a discipline. Cause like you said, it's a drift. It's not like you wake up one day and you're demanding a parking spot and a throne yes. and servants. It's like you drift over time and I think that entitlement is sort of like the boiling of the frog, right? The temperature yep. just kind of keeps getting cranked up until eventually, you know, you're kind of boiled. Yep. yep. Uh, number two, a posture of stewardship, not ownership. Though some don't recognize it, all leaders are temporary. That's That'll preach. Uh, because leadership is a temporary assignment, humble leaders treat other roles and their organizations or ministries as something they steward, not something they own. They know the Lord ultimately owns it all, and they make decisions from the posture of a faithful steward, not the posture of an owner who will always sit in the chair of leadership. Humble leaders desire to steward the season well and, and humbly recognize the season won't last forever. Yeah, it's... I was reading a pastor the other day and I forget who it is, but he was, he's a pastor of one of these bigger churches and he's starting to hand off the church to the next, uh, the next leader. And he was quoted as saying, I'm going to butcher his quote, but you'll get it. He essentially said, uh, the true success of your leadership. And he was talking pastoral leadership, but I think it fits for any, he says the true mark of your leadership is the success of the person who comes after you. Oh, that's good. And that is because we do, you fall into this thing of going, well, I'm always going to be the leader. I'm the one in charge of men. For me, it's, it's been even a little bit harder because I started the church. So, Sometimes I, I have jealousy for people who've been in churches that, that have been a, really old and they can right. walk in and, and that church has a picture of every senior pastor through the generations. Yes, yes. And then you can have a visible reminder, like, I'm just another one in the line. Totally. And that doesn't have to be depressing. In fact, it's no, really I encouraging. It's right? Yeah. Like, all right, I'm part of this chain and I'm eventually going to hand it off and I'm carrying this mantle. Uh, yeah, this concept of stewardship, stewardship that says, I'm not the end all. I'm not the one who's going to 
this place is going to rise and fall. I'm going to yeah. do my part for my season, and then I'm going to hand off hopefully a healthy organization or a healthy ministry to the next person to carry it forward. It's a lot of what you know Dave Ferguson and Warren yes. Bird write about in Hero Maker, right? Like be be the platform. Don't don't be so concerned with being the star. The the true mark of a leader is this permission giving. It's Absolutely. like helping people uh, understand these multiplication principles, and I think. That phrase there that we steward seasons as well, because so often in church world, don't you you only hear stewardship when talking about money, yep. which is a big part of it. But to steward your season, to look at whatever you have right now as mm. a gift, whatever season you're in right now as a gift. How do you how do you steward that? Well, yes. All right. So number one was an attitude of gratitude, not entitlement. Number two was a posture of stewardship, not ownership. And the third one's a big one. Trust in the Lord, not in oneself. Humble mm. leaders trust the Lord and not themselves. Humble leaders seek his wisdom, not their own. They lead in his energy, not their own. They trust his leading, not their own. Their confidence resides ultimately in the Lord and not in themselves. What do you think? Yeah, that's a hard one, but so true. Why is it Why is it hard? Uh, because uh, as when you lead organizations or lead teams, it's like, okay, it's constantly like, what can I do to make this better? And that's important. Right. Right. But you skip over the posture of prayer and you skip over, especially in church work that, that God is at work. This is God's church. And I, and like they say here, I can trust him. Uh, I can do my part. Uh, I can ultimately turn to him when I need wisdom or for wisdom. And uh, yeah, this, this is, this, this is a, a, foundational one but can be a difficult one like you probably would you agree with that you find this hard oh yeah i think i think it's difficult too because it's really nebulous it's it's sort of like how okay so how do i i know my physical strength or energy like i i can assess that i can determine that sometimes in certain when your nose is to the grindstone you're like how do i lead in god's strength in this moment Mm -hmm. and not my own How, how do i actually pay attention to what God is speaking because I think God speaks through our will and through our mind. And so it's it's all, it's often that balance of like, how do I know the difference sometimes between trusting myself and trusting what God is kind of whispering to me that those lines aren't always clear, you know, and sometimes you read it in blog form. You're like, well, yeah, of course. Yeah. Yeah. Trust in the Lord. Yeah. That's what I think it's how we do that. And I think the other two feed into that. It's establishing rhythms of, I got, I got to steward this well of beginning and ending each day with a posture of gratitude. I think those things actually all kind of intertwine. Yeah. And uh, I don't know, man, I read this short list and I thought, yeah, that's the kind of, if, if I look back f- after 40, 50 years of ministry, like I, this is the kind of legacy I would love. To no lead. doubt. I like, mean, no Ian led like that. And uh, I don't know that, that for me, for whatever reason in this season, I, I thought was really inspiring. Absolutely. Well, coming up next, we're going to land the plane the way we always do. That's with some interweb insanity that we did not find, by the way. Nope. So if it gets weird, you can blame Keith Conrad. Like That's coming yesterday. up next. Exactly. <laughs> no, perfect example. That's coming up next on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Here's some weird stuff we found on the internet. <clears throat> Here's some more weird stuff we found on the web. Hey, everyone. How weird is that bumper music every time? (laughs) Creepy. (laughs) It's funny, too, because the whole rest of the show, it's like these thought out like musical choices. And then it's just insanity. But I think that's probably fitting. It's thought out. And the disclaimer every time is that we end the show with some interweb insanity. Our executive producer, Keith Conrad, has hand selected the stories, if I could say that, um, delivered them to us with a, a grimace. A sinister smile, if I may. And uh, they're face on on the table right now. We've not seen them. 
We don't know the sound effects, so if we if we become a little unhinged, uh, it's legitimate. Please forgive us. And uh, Brian, why don't you kick us off? He promised that they're a little more toned down than yesterday. yesterday I, don't, I don't buy it. Yesterday was was towing the line even for Keith's standards. So, <laughs> Colorado, a hundred and one year old World War II veteran, flew fifteen hundred miles to commission grandson at Air Force Academy. Oh. See, I think we're gonna have six like uh, heartwarming ones here. I think you're right. Joseph Clock is among nine hundred and eighty nine members of the. U.S. Air Force Academy's class of 2019, who graduated this weekend. But a unique moment with family set this week apart. His grandfather, a 101-year-old World War II veteran, Walter Clock, flew from Amherst, New York, to commission his grandson. I'm so excited for him, his father, Joseph's father, told uh, WGRZ before the trip to Colorado. He's fulfilling his dream, and he was so excited that his grandfather, a World War II Air Force bombardier, Bombardier pilot and Bombardier could come and commission him. The moment was captured on camera by the Air Force Academy. Walter received a standing ovation and everyone in the room was gifted with a memory they'll never forget. Are you crying? Am I crying? No, I'm not crying. You're crying. (laughs) That's a good one. It's a good one. That's a really good one. Mine is not going to remain in that thread. (laughs) Australia (laughs) underwear clad man chases home intruder with didgeridoo. Oh, we got the uh, the didgeridoo bed. That's awesome. I mean, they could be. Yeah, maybe not, though. Dressed in just his underpants, which is just a funny (laughs) word. Dressed in just his underpants and wielding a didgeridoo. An Adelaide man has chased an intruder from his property, leading to a swift arrest. Kim Abrook woke to noises in his Fulham, Fulham, Fulham? Fulham Gardens home early on Monday, disturbing the thief and chasing him out the door. He managed to contact the police as he ran down the street uh, after with the police dog helping officers uh, make an arrest soon. I noticed I run faster naked. Of course. Mr. Abrick told reporters. He's on me. He's going to try and bite my calf muscle. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. This is, this is such a fun part of the job. Uh-oh. I'm worried. We're in Florida. Yeah, you should be worried. Men try to steal from ATM using blowtorch. Yikes. Weld it together instead. <laughs> Deputies are looking for two would-be thieves who tried to rob an ATM machine with a blowtorch but ended up welding it together. Okaloosa County Sheriff's deputies say early Friday morning, two men entered the second floor of the boardwalk on Okaloosa Island. Deputies say surveillance video shows the men attempting to cut the ATM open with a blowtorch, but they instead welded the metal part shut. A worker who came to service the machine found the burn marks on the hinges and the locks. Deputies say one suspect had a black half-nose mask with black sunglasses and a black leather-style jacket, camo pants, desert military-style boots, and the other guy was dressed similarly. Let me tell you something, folks. You can't fix stupid. <laughs> oh, gosh. All right, so we might be doubly concerned now. I don't know that we've ever done back-to-back Florida back stories. Back Florida. This is going to rip a hole in the space-time continuum. Uh, man calls 911 <laughs> to brag about fleeing traffic stop. What do we pay you guys for? <laughs> <laughs> He's taunting them. <laughs> a Florida man was arrested after fleeing a traffic stop and then calling 911 to brag about not being caught yet. He was found with drugs in his vehicle and continued to brag about the incident. Deputies said that the 19-year-old Nicholas Carlman Jones was pulled over in St. Augustine, St. Augustine, however you say it. I always get that wrong. After he fled from a traffic stop, Nicholas was also wanted for a warrant out. Uh, of the St. John's County Sheriff's Office when he was pulled over. The St. John's County Sheriff's Office said they found a jar full of marijuana 
THC wax, a small bag containing an unknown white powder, and a dish containing a pink-tinted crystal substance. Let him go, Lou. Someone going that fast has no time for a ticket. <laughs> that's, good, that's good logic. I can and that. the last one out of England. We call, call it the Florida of uh, Europe. <laughs> do, do we? I do. <laughs> the Florida of Europe. Oh, I boy. I was trying to remember what continent it's on. <laughs> Is that what the pause was for? Was. The Florida of uh, South America. Right. <laughs> Horse tries to get served in McDonald's and poops on floor before leaving. Are you allowed to say that? Florida? McDonald's? Yeah. Uh, you yes. make that joke every time. First, the two men swiped another customer's order, but that was just a warm-up to the main event. They led their horse into the restaurant, and the nag got a least, at least halfway in before deciding the fast food mecca was not for him <laughs> and backing out. Uh, Manir Mohammed, one of the managers at the restaurant, said he was, quote, shocked and had never witnessed an incident like this before. The 40-year-old said they came through the drive-thru on their horses and ordered two drinks from the side window. They paid for the two drinks and then went to the collection point and said they had another order, which was the car behind's order. Uh, Mr. Mohammed said there were around 30 customers at the time. Everyone was shocked. People were calling guys idiots and lots of people were taking pictures. Uh, They subsequently had to spend 20 minutes clearing up the horse manure. The incident was not reported to police, but has been captured on TV. I'm loving it. People might not even recognize that anymore. I don't think that's their current slogan, is it? I think. I don't know. It doesn't matter. I don't it's, know, but it's, that's so funny. Horse. Whatever depth we had earlier in the show, this last segment always just undoes all of that. It completely unravels it. <laughs> we hope that you enjoyed it, and we hope that you'll join us tomorrow from 4 to 6 p.m. here on The Common Good right here at AM 1160. Hope for your life. Star General Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.